often we are taught to think that like the the professor is kind of the one kind of coming and giving giving answers giving knowledge to these sort of empty vessels of students who are there to like receive knowledge but really like i mean if you've ever been in a classroom environment i i find for myself it becomes immediately obvious that the one with the, the power is there is not the professor if it is the students entirely if the students are disengaged the class is going that is what is going to make it a terrible class um and they are the really the ones who have uh control over over things although they don't know it but for the most part even if you're encountering really good ideas really good political ideas in an academic classroom setting the whole way that that setting exists is not to help put those ideas into practice and you can't test ideas to see which of them are actually politically useful uh, if you're only learning them in that classroom environment there's no way of um, kind of putting them to the test of practice Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. All right, welcome to episode 25 of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Today we're going to be talking about universities, politics, and activism. What kind of possibilities there are for building student worker power on campus and what kinds of limitations we currently face in our moment. Just to briefly introduce ourselves, my name is Misha. I'm a former student uh, or an alumni of the University of Winnipeg, and I've also worked there in the context of being a teaching assistant and very briefly as a contract academic staff. So I have I have history and a kind of ongoing relationship to the broader community around the U of W. And yeah, I'll pass it over to you, David. Yes, uh, my name is David, and I teach work at the University of Manitoba, where I've been for quite some time. So I think it's worth starting this off by thinking a little bit about what universities are like these days when it comes to politics, because there are very few places in our society right now where there's space for an, an open discussion or an exploration of, of left-wing ideas. And because of the weakness of left-wing political organizations, a lot of the political engagement that happens, engagement with left-wing ideas happens for people in and around universities. This didn't always used to be the case, but it's certainly, I think, the, the case right now in, in our society. So people can take courses on uh, certain kinds of topics that may give them the opportunity to explore left-wing politics. And there's also the possibility for holding public discussions and other kinds of events on campuses in a way that, you know, it's much harder to do off campus. I mean, this has changed a bit because of the shift towards doing so many things online since the beginning of the pandemic, but I still think there's a real space that's there. And there's a kind of, I guess, a an expect, maybe not an expectation, but like a sense that this is the kind of thing you might expect to find around university campus. So there's some kind of cultural validation to some extent for exploring these, these kinds of ideas. But there are a lot of problems, I think, when it comes to moving from exploring ideas to actually acting to change the world. Because the way that we learn about ideas in a classroom is quite different than the way that's politically useful for using ideas to organize people for change uh, and to relate to people who haven't come to politics in that kind of way. Uh, so I think that while there's an opportunity, there are also ways in which the, the habits and the 
ways that people learn to engage with left-wing politics in an academic environment, actually those uh, can be obstacles to being politically effective when working for change on a campus or more broadly in the workplace and the community and the society uh, elsewhere. Yeah, thank you, David. And certainly thinking about my own experience, like going to university was partly the place where I started to encounter you know, left-wing ideas in a, a serious way for the first time. I had maybe heard a little bit at, you know, a union that I was a part of in a workplace beforehand, but not any kind of extended discussion. So I think for a lot of people and myself included, taking classes, talking with people about ideas or being kind of invited to have those conversations for perhaps the first time is where so many people even kind of learn that that's a possibility. And yet at the same time, it's very disconnected from broader movement organizing that is either happening elsewhere or kind of quite stagnant in our society right now. So there's often a disconnect between encountering ideas, getting excited about the possibility that, you know, a better world is possible, and then really hitting a bit of a wall um, in terms of uh, what to do about them other than kind of inevitably, if you get into researching this for classes and that kind of thing being asked, if you're interested in going to grad school, um, and that's sort of the kind of option that's given to you to keep exploring these, but often in a very disconnected way for movement building. And I think it's really relevant here to talk then about what are universities educating us for? You know, is it for just the exploration of ideas and exploring what possibilities for what our lives and discovering art, discovering history, learning these kind of ideal, these kind of humanistic ideals that we're taught about university when the reality is uh, the function that universities have is to educate people for the labor market and kind of broadly teaching young people in their you know late teens, early 20s, for the most part, of course, there's different age groups that go to university, but teaching these people how to participate in a neoliberal capitalist society. And part of that is just through um, kind of instilling the discipline of assignments and uh, kind of submitting work to authority and that this way some of it is direct training programs for various jobs and we certainly see today where a lot of universities are putting a great deal of funding towards different technology sectors um, putting a lot of money into business school which is really mostly for the sake of kind of a place you go to get connections to become a an entrepreneur or something like that but it's um it's not really for the sake of exploring about ideas about the kind of society you might want to live in. Universities also often have a secondary function kind of depending on your class position, because of course, there are very different kinds of universities out there. There are Ivy League schools out there, ones that have a certain reputation associated with them. And these universities often play the role of reproducing the ruling class by teaching a new generation how to govern others and how to, how to exert power in that way. Um, so there's a really big difference in terms of what people go into university expecting out of it, whether for most people it's being kind of taught to expect some sort of broadening your horizons of education and for for the, the upper class, it is for learning how to rule in a way. So I think that is all I have to say about uh, the function of universities at this point. Yeah, I think that's really important. And there's a strange kind of cultural disconnect. If you look at movies like there was the, the Netflix film, The Chair, and the other movies that kind of give a certain impression of what universities are like today, uh, that are, is really very disconnected from their reality, right? Uh, in terms of who's there and what they're like and what you know the everyday experiences of people are like. And we saw in the post-World War II decades, big expansion of universities in this society and other similar ones in order to provide a more highly trained workforce to employers and both upper level white collar workers and quote, quote unquote professional employees and managers of different kinds. And this has only continued to expand because of the way that employers use credentials more as a sorting mechanism. So lots of jobs that used to only require high school now require some kind of post-secondary. The competitive advantage in the job market that you used to get from an undergrad degree is not what it used to be. People often have to have a master's degree in order to get that previous advantage. But such a large number of employers require university degrees of one kind or another that this you know, has just further expanded right? the percentage of people who are going to be taking some form of university or college credential. And 
as you said, there's a lot of this is about going to business school, also just ex expansion of the so-called STEM areas of the university, the science, technology, engineering, medicine. So relatively speaking, what people might have thought of as the traditional arts and sciences are a smaller proportion of the degrees that are being granted than, than used to be the case. It's interesting that in, as well, in Canada, universities are less divided into different tiers between elite universities and less prestigious universities than is the case in the US or Britain, for example. It's a point that Alan Sears has certainly made that we're there, you have a very, very hierarchically organized pyramid of prestige and cost, that that's less the case here. There certainly are differences and divisions, but uh, it's not as uh, bifurcated or not as uh, divided as it is in, in some other societies. It's also worth mentioning that as the percentage of funding that universities get from the government has declined over time, the, so the percentage of the operating revenue that comes from provincial government grants has gone down. One of the things that's happened is the universities in Canada have turned more to international students to bring in revenue since international students pay so much more than domestic students in, in tuition per, per person. Uh, and so I think at U of M, it's about one in five students is now international. And so then you think about what percentage of the total tuition revenue they're paying. It's really high. And so that also is something that's, that's changed. And that's, it's great to have people from all over the world come to university. But what drove that, in large part, the, uh, the neoliberal you know, underfunding of, of universities, that's then turned universities into kind of predatory recruiters internationally to bring in more revenue. Another point with the way international students are brought in is that there's been a number of studies on how international students often are very subject to kind of, of quite extreme levels of exploitation by employers. You know, they have to pay enormous amounts for tuition and often, unless they're coming from quite wealthy backgrounds, they're going to be working quite a lot to pay that off. And recently, the Canadian government lifted the cap on the number of hours that international students were allowed to work, which was sort of done as a kind of framed in the media as, you know, this is a generous thing so that international students can um, work more hours to get more money to support themselves, which maybe there will be people who can get more hours this way. But at the same time, this is really part of Canada's labor strategy of getting more workers often to work very low wage jobs in sectors where there is difficulty getting employees now. And so there's as you said earlier, there's this quite predatory relationship to how Canadian universities are oriented towards international students. And I think this is one reason why it, like international student organizing efforts intersect with migrant justice issues and, and labor issues in a lot of key ways that are, are really important to think about in Canada's specific configuration of post-secondary education. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to finally try to bury the myth that international students are all wealthy is a, an idea that's still out there because sure there are some people from ruling class backgrounds um, who are international students just as there are some from ruling class backgrounds who are domestic students but that's certainly certainly in manitoba it's not it's not really true for very many of the international students and they're often living in pretty crappy conditions and under enormous pressure I mean, there are great differences among international students, but there is somehow this, this idea from the past that still lingers out there, which is really um, not accurate at, at all. And as, yeah, as you say, the pressures are very real. There's lots of international students working under the table, you know, in really, really bad jobs being super exploited. So then there's the question of, you know, when people do learn about politics in university, what do they learn um, about both in terms of the ideas, but also how they learn to think about politics in a in a deeper sense. Do you have any thoughts you wanted to share to start us off on that? Yeah, there's sort of two ways I think that people engage with politics on campuses. One, you know, if they're taking a class where maybe they're taking a, a sociology class or a class that is discussing history and politics in direct ways um, in that context, you have you're reading texts that you might just be encountering for the first time there. And also people engage with politics at universities through campus organizing, whether that's with their student union, with different groups on campus, 
And I guess maybe the other kind of possibility is if there is labor action that happens on universities. I'm adding three points, actually, changing my mind. And I guess I'll address campus organizing first. There, there are certainly histories of very radical campus activism that happens that is really inspiring, quite interesting to look at. However, there is currently in Canada, I would say, a quite regulated approach to doing campus activism. There's often a sort of expectation that what you are there to do is to, you know, petition the administration of the university. So that might look a number of different ways, whether that is, you know, getting the university to perhaps do some sort of event on, say, International Women's Day, as an example, or doing some like a, a politics of recognition, which can be good in many ways. But at the same time, university administrations are very clever in certain ways in how to engage with some of these uh, issues specifically around gender oppression, racial oppression, and queer liberation. Well, they wouldn't say liberation on that, but, uh, you know, LGBTQ rights. But taking up elements of activist demands and presenting the university itself as very accepting and progressive on these issues, while actually treating the students who have these identities quite badly, uh, this happens a lot through different sexual assault survivor programs. And there's been a number of different kind of, I don't know, conversations, issues, people thinking about this recently, where uh, people who experience sexual violence on campus will bring forward issues to university administrations and try and get like some action to be done about this and are met with a very like labyrinthian bureaucracy that is sort of designed to present the issue as resolved already. You know, they'll have some sort of office for uh, survivors or something like that, that basically takes these concerns and gets them a bit lost in the, the bureaucracy of it, rather than actually meeting demands that students might very rightly have. And at the same time, then you get this sort of proliferation of different offices for for. Um, you know, for survivors, for equity and this kind of thing, um, who are meant to you know, represent real issues at campus, but are designed in such a way to have basically no uh, progress happen on actually meeting people's needs, actually responding to real demands, but presenting themselves as if they are listening or that they are responding to the barest of demands that they can get away with to make themselves look like progressive institutions. And this can sometimes really deflate the movement strength of uh, campus activists when you do have sometimes people who see this and don't kind of quite realize that the limitations that they're actually being presented with and think that, oh, the administration is acknowledging us as saying that they're they're listening. We have succeeded here when the reality is they they haven't. The, the same issue is going to happen next semester and likely nothing was going to happen about it. So I think this kind of broader perspective on not just getting administration recognition, but on really uh, kind of building a student movement is something that is often pretty lacking. And it's difficult too, because universities, people are often only there for four to five years. So activists join, get really impassioned about things. And then by the, they've been betrayed by administrations and burnt out um, by the end of it, and then are kind of left to figure things out after their degree. And there's not often kind of systems of like passing down some of this this knowledge to new activists and getting people the tools to actually know what they're up against and know how to organize effectively. A lot of that gets lost for a number of reasons, partly because of degree times, um, the increasing precarity of people's lives, which makes it difficult to build organizations outside of the university that might help campus activists with this kind of thing. All these factors play into campus activism being rather fraught and often not very effective. Yeah, I think that you're really right in the way you describe the university management's um, well, approach to responding to particularly um, demands and 
activism around different forms of repression that's been learned over years. And I think there are people, sometimes there are people who go in with great sincerity to work for universities in equity offices and, um, you know, the organizations or the, the parts of the administration that work with indigenous students or, or other places who really do want to make a difference in, in the lives of, of people and op- taking down barriers and opening up opportunities for people. But yet, they're ultimately, you know, subject to the directives coming from central administration. So it can be very difficult for them. They're pulled in two directions if they're actually sincere. Um, and if they're not, then they just become cogs in the administrative machine. But um, I think that's that's really true. And because, you know, there certainly have been lots of situations where you've had mass mobilizations of students around tuition fee increases, for example, that sometimes can have a, a different kind of a dynamic to them, but they haven't taken place in Manitoba, for, you know, in for a very long time. And so they haven't left a political imprint and they're not something that's been part of the experiences of people here in the way that they have been in, in some other countries and some other times. I think, maybe just to pick up on the, another point, since you said, of course, people aren't necessarily uh, students at the university for that long, and sometimes it could even be only three years, right? If people are there for a general degree, because one of the ways that people used to have some of the political knowledge of past activists passed down to them was through campus political clubs and associations of different kinds. They are now very rare, radical left groups like that on, on campuses. And so there's very little of that that happens in terms of what we could understand as being part of the infrastructure of dissent in a society, specifically on campuses. Whereas there was a time from the time when the radical left got more established on campuses beginning in the late 1960s and really extending in certain places into the early 21st century, those kinds of groups are less present now in in a lot of places. So there's been less of that passing down of experiences and uh, places where people might learn a kind of politics that's uh, different from the kind of politics of um, recognition and representation that you were talking about before. Should we talk a little bit about the, the classroom, since you mentioned, right, three different ways that people uh, think about politics? Yeah, we can we can talk about the the myth of the Marxist professor. I mean, I guess we technically do have one here, but, um, you know, they are they are really much rarer than you would think. Yes, that's very true. I'm acutely aware of that fact. And even if people are taking a course where they get to encounter radical ideas taught by a radical rather than caricatured by by someone else. It's often the politics is limited to analyzing how capitalism works or how particular kind of oppression is playing out or something like that, which is, of course, very important, rather than what would follow from that about organizing strategy and tactics, you know, socialist politics, that that kind of thing. So people, it's it's much easier to get an analysis about capitalism and, and oppression in different ways than it is to actually, in a university classroom setting, learn about organizing to change the world, you know, certainly not in any kind of useful way. And because, of course, there are not a lot of places to encounter those ideas, I don't want to diminish the value of what people can, can learn, especially if they kind of know what they want and then can find out, find the people that can teach the courses that they're interested in. But there are real limits there. I guess the other thing that's worth mentioning too is that it used to be harder to encounter these ideas than it is now because people who really are curious about this can find so much online, right? That you used to actually have to encounter by finding a book or a magazine or taking a class. And now, I mean, there are lots of problems with encountering left-wing ideas on YouTube and you know, um, trying to learn politics that way. But it is a little bit different than it used to be. So there are more opportunities with all their limits, which would be another whole topic for another discussion. But that's just worth mentioning, because I do think uh, the context has changed in terms of how people first encounter political ideas. Like often, if you were in high school, you know, certainly when I was in high school, that just wasn't there. You had to find a newspaper, or a magazine, or a socialist public event, something like that, or film screening. But that's uh, that simply isn't the case anymore. Yeah, no, that is a good point that there are perhaps more kind of entryways to finding out about left-wing ideas now than there were in the past. And I mean, probably the, the proliferation of different entry points one can find is, is makes it a bit difficult because there uh, can make it difficult to have a, a shared understanding when there are kind of so many things out there and a lot of very different diverging perspectives and 
histories, it's kind of hard to get a kind of systematic understanding of them. So you can be meeting someone who's interested in the same, you know, says they're they're also a socialist and have found out about things and thinking like, great, we have so much in common already. And then suddenly kind of find that you've like found, had very different paths to getting there. And that that might be worthwhile. Like maybe it's a way that you could learn a lot from, but at the same time, it can be difficult when it's often very individual kind of journeys to figuring this stuff out rather than having an experience of organizing together with your fellow workers in a workplace or being on campus and seeing an issue of injustice happen and organizing with people to uh, respond to that. Um, Those kind of concrete political lessons are in some ways undervalued on the left now where there's, there's so much information out there and there's kind of this sometimes call you hear from people to like, you know, educate yourself about things happening in the world. And that is great. And that is important. That is certainly how I found out about any of this, but at the same time, learning lessons from concrete experiences, it makes it sink in in in, in a different way. Um, It kind of synthesizes what you're reading and what you're hearing out there with your experiences in the real world. Maybe the real world isn't the, the right characterization since it is both are real, but I think that that synthesis is really important. And yeah, I mean, we, we don't need to spend too much more time on the, the classroom itself, but it is striking to me thinking about how many people I have read or found really kind of important for my, my own kind of political development who are people who come out of very academic backgrounds, um, either going through grad school as radicals and then having the time to research and really kind of think through the nature of capitalist oppression and that kind of thing. And that is really valuable and important. Um, and at the same time, it is one of the more cynical reading of that is in in one way, it is a, a, a safe way for capitalism to have an outlet for people who are seriously interested in this kind of thing to be able to dedicate their lives to it in a way that is by design a little disconnected from experiences of mass movement, or or at least certainly can be, um, unless you really are like making connections with it. There probably are a lot of professors out there who would consider themselves radical in various ways, but yet maybe have very little organizing experience. And that is a, a bit of a a problem and certainly a, a, a kind of strange experience in um, yeah my own history, like going through university and encountering, you know, reading Marx in a classroom and then um, hearing the discussion about it be very about the the text in this very abstract way without kind of reference to what, what has this meant to people who wanted to do things about it and getting beyond the, the classroom um, or even turning the classroom into a place where you can spread different ideas, maybe having students kind of uh, understanding themselves as also agents with the possibility of of collectively acting. Often we are taught to think that like the the professor is kind of the one kind of coming and giving giving answers, giving knowledge to these sort of empty vessels of students who are there to like receive knowledge. But really like, I mean, if you've ever been in a classroom environment, I, I find for myself, it becomes immediately obvious that the one with the, the power is, there is not the professor. If it is the students entirely, if the students are disengaged, the class is going, that is what is going to make it a terrible class. Um, and they are the, really the ones who have uh, control over, over things, although they don't know it, but for the most part. And I think the more people recognize that, and then if you are hearing a a prof kind of going on a, a screed about something you're upset by, like, and all the students walk out that uh, that prof no longer has any authority, really. So I think that's a, a kind of perspective that we're not taught to approach universities or education with that is, um, is really important. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And I think your point about the way that people, even if you're encountering really good ideas, really good political ideas in an academic classroom setting, the whole way that that setting exists is not to help put those ideas into practice and that it's very hard to test. You can't test ideas to see which of them are actually politically useful. Uh, if you're only learning them in that classroom environment, as you say, right, there's no way of um, kind of putting them to the test of practice. And the fact that people, for the most part, are there to to pass the course or to get the grade that they want to get in order to move on to get the credential and so on, all of that, that kind of very instrumental approach cuts against trying to engage with the ideas in a politically useful way. So it's, um, and yeah, those all the hierarchical 
nonsense, um, authoritarian nonsense that, that permeates university teaching and the way people conduct themselves there. It's, uh, it's definitely not the, not the ideal political space. And yet people often learn politics that way. And so it means having to, I think, to be an effective organizer, you have to actually unlearn a lot of the habits and ways of doing things that people pick up there. Also, the way people learn to speak, like that's not, not the way that you would find politically useful to do a talk for political education or in an organizing setting. So there's you know, certainly things that people can, can glean, um, but it's about separating out the good content from all those negative features that uh, are part of the way that ideas are, are organized in the, uh, in the capitalist university system today. You mentioned labor politics on campus. Maybe we can also come back to that. Yeah, the third kind of place that people encounter politics at universities. Yeah, because universities are workplaces. You actually get strikes or mobilizations that could potentially turn into strikes, which then also challenge both people who work in, and study in universities to relate to what's going on. So that's another place where people can have political learning, whether as workers or as students. And yeah, I mean... I have not been involved in any labor action uh, during my time at university, but I feel like I certainly did witness a lot of barriers to making that happen. And yeah, you will likely have a kind of more um, maybe thorough understanding of this, um, having like been involved in strikes at university. But my my impression, when, especially when I was a student doing quite a bit of labor, TAing and that kind of thing at the university, was that there was a, some very stark divides between the workforce at uh, a university. I mean, there's going to be division of labor is kind of one of the preconditions of like capitalist society. So uh, of course, there are going to be divisions of labor at a, at a university. But the difference in interest between, say, a tenured professor and for the extreme example, like the janitor who is like cleaning halls after after hours at the university are going to be having very different experiences of that physical space. They're going to be paid wildly differently and have very different relationships to job security. And I think there is a real, there is sometimes a, a real problem with tenured academics being very kind of comfortable with their position and not particularly interested in seeing their work as a workplace. Some people who kind of very much are in it for their love of knowledge and of, of reading and teaching and that kind of thing, which can be personally kind of fulfilling and whatnot, but um, are very, for those reasons, very unwilling to see it as something worth struggling over and something that is uh, is political in nature. And then, you know, you have further hierarchical breakdowns between, say, tenured academics and contract academic staff who are, are an increasingly large portion of the labor force in university departments and are often paid, uh, well, both have very poor levels of job security and are are paid quite terribly. Uh, at the University of Winnipeg specifically, I know they are some of the lowest paid contract academic staff in the country. So it is 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 quite striking. And then at the same time, you have students who are also in various working roles at the university, um, often as teaching assistants or research assistants. There may also be other kinds of labor students are involved in. I mean, my own experience at the University of Winnipeg is specific because often teaching assistants are graduate students and on some campuses are quite organized among and able to be in conversation with each other. At the University of Winnipeg, it is very difficult to find out who else even is a teaching assistant. And to get a list of who else, uh, who actually are your fellow workers is uh, nigh impossible, which makes even just having conversations about working conditions. Are, are profs you're working for are expecting more hours than you actually are being paid for? How much training are you getting for your job? Uh, how much are you being paid even sometimes is very different across different positions. And without a context in which to talk about this sort of stuff, it can be really isolating and make you feel like you're being given this kind of special opportunity as an you know, third, fourth year student that is going to help in your academic career and that kind of thing. And then that sort of promise covers up a whole lot of um, exploitation that is really going on. Yes, it's an incredibly hierarchical workforce. Um, I mean, of course, you find big hierarchies in so many uh, settings. But yeah, as you say, like the, the span from some of the people who have the best paid and most secure jobs left 
in terms of tenured academic workers, all the way through to, you know, highly precarious people who are working teaching uh, or, you know, potentially contracted out um, people working in food services or this kind of work, right? So it's it's a very divided group of workers. It's really challenging. Often, even when people are unionized, there's so many different unions and trying to build connections across these unions can be uh, can be quite a challenge. So there are ways in which people do learn what you described, like kind of learning just to kind of cope as an individual in the workplace, the way that most people, right, um, are, are just struggling to cope in in the workplace. It's people learn that on campus. But because it is a highly unionized environment, people are more likely to encounter the potential of, of job action or an actual strike. Because of Manitoba teachers not having the right to strike, that was given up by teachers in Manitoba back in the 1950s, unlike in lots of other provinces where students might encounter a a strike while they're in the public school system. That's not going to happen in Manitoba. And so it's something that people would first encounter when they're in the in the post-secondary system. That's um, maybe a Manitoba specific quirk in this, uh, in this situation. Yeah. So I think it would be good to talk a little bit, just briefly at least about uh, how things have changed over time, because there are ways in which the situation that people are familiar with now is, is not the way that things have always been. And certainly one way that that's true is that in the period of post-Second World War economic prosperity that stretched from the middle of the 1940s through into the middle of the 1970s that saw a great expansion of, of universities, many, many more students, especially students not coming from middle class or ruling class backgrounds going to university. That was the era in which student politics really changed and universities were a hotbed of um, of left politics and lots of dis discussions around international questions like the Vietnam War, other national liberation struggles, various kinds of social justice ideas and, and so on. And so you there were lots of people that went to university with the idea that this was a place where you could hang out and do these things, right? Engage with these ideas. And that has completely vanished. Like all, all of that is, is gone. Um, that's just simply no longer the case in terms of, of campus politics. I talked to a small number of people who were either students or were, were working at the U of M back in the, the 60s and, and early 70s. And they talk about a place that's just unrecognizable um, today. And there, there are different you know, reasons why, but certainly the fact that you, know, you have students who are working now so many hours of paid work. Class I was teaching this term, I did a survey only half of students responded, but uh, the average that they were working was 20 hours a week of work, but it ranged from zero to 40. So if you think about it, people doing, some people doing a full course load uh, while working 40 hours a week. That's very different than the way that it, it was uh, in previous era when universities were much more affordable to attend. And so this, that, that kind of brutal pressure of the job market has really made a difference in terms of students' orientation to what they're doing when they're on campus and how they engage with 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 the university and of course the broader change that's happened with the weakening of the radical left and of the infrastructure of dissent that it can grow out of and reinforce that has left its its mark so it's no longer the case that on many campuses you find that any you know left-wing student activist group um, when i went to a university i went to york university which was one of the places where you had a stronger presence for the left you several different left groups active and so on in, in the years when I was a student, um, but that's now really rare. And certainly Manitoba, it's been an exception in the last two decades for there to be any organized left political presence on a campus. There have been some attempts, but things have not endured and in some cases even been shut down. So the Students Against Israeli Apartheid groups that existed a number of years back on U of W and U of M campuses, ran aground with U of W, the banning of Israeli Apartheid Week, and at U of M, the de-recognition, the loss of students' uh, club status uh, that the student union imposed on SIA. Uh, and unfortunately, the way that then, rather than rising to that challenge, the people who were involved essentially folded and dispersed. So it's meant that there have been lots of students who have been through university, never encountered anything like that, and therefore haven't been able to even pass on any experiences to another generation of people. 
universities in Manitoba, are, the campuses are, are pretty barren politically. Again, it's not that there haven't ever been initiatives. 20 years ago, there were students who did things around the war in Iraq. There have been students, as I said, who've done things around Palestine. There have been initiatives of different kinds, but they are really the exception rather than the, the rule. And that makes it difficult for students who really um, do get politicized and are, are looking to uh, work with like-minded people on their campus. Now, this is not a permanent condition, right? This, this can still change, but it's, it's made more difficult by the fact that student debt is what it is. And a lot of people are just trying to go in, get their degree, uh, work the hours that they need to work to support themselves and, and to get out as soon as they can. Um, so those are just more challenging conditions to do political work in uh, than used to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. I certainly find it a bit hard thinking about, you know, what should radical students do and, you know, how do we change this kind of condition that campuses are currently in? There's been such a dearth of organizing on campus for so long, and the initiatives that have happened have been so kind of fleeting and haven't really passed down enough to leave people with a lot of tools to work with. And, and yet at the same time, there is possible resurgence and interest in ideas of socialism and in recognition that the world is going to a very bad place very quickly and something must be done. So it is not, I would say, for a, a lack of of appetite or of of interest. I think there are certainly a lot of people who would probably say very similar things to what we're saying now in terms of wishing that something was happening. There are reasons why uh, it is so difficult, but one thing I can think of that is perhaps useful for people trying to navigate um, the politics of campuses today is having more whatever kinds of small structures that exist outside of universities that can give some context to what is happening, what kind of politics people are are, rec are encountering around having demands being absorbed by administrations through the politics of recognition, like we talked about, or even just encountering some of the, the frustrations around not having context to go to, whatever kinds of organizations that do exist can perhaps connect with students who are out there struggling to make those connections and interested in doing so. Yeah, I think there, there really does need to be a um, broader organizing context around you know, especially like fighting the rising cost of tuition that is incredibly necessary in this moment. Let's talk a little bit about uh, two recent flashpoints, if you like, around politics on campuses in Winnipeg, um, one which was a labor action and, and one which was a, a more recent political controversy. And I'll, I'll just say something to, to start with about the strike by the University of Manitoba Faculty Association in, in late 2021. And I think what was important about this was, well, first of all, it was a, a you know, a modestly successful strike. Um, not enough of those these days. So that in of itself was, was a good thing. But from the perspective of, of students, it spurred the launch of a group that was called Student Supporting UMFA which has been talked about earlier um, on previous episodes of this podcast. And uh, it then became the Student Solidarity Collective before it unfortunately folded or became inactive. But it was, it was a great example of on a campus where there had not been any really significant recent student activity. Students came together with the, the thing that brought them together was support for the, uh, for the union's efforts, but it brought together um, a group of, of students who did some meaningful solidarity activity during the strike and then attempted to establish the student activist organization of the of the left broadly speaking on campus in the context of pandemic uh, at a phase when people were still entirely doing remote learning and so then well, that was really challenging conditions for people to be organizing because people hadn't met in person before they started to meet online to do things to support UMFA. So this built on the experience of a similar student supporting UMFA group that existed in the 2016 UMFA strike, although there was nobody who was a student in 2021 who had been a student in 2016. Still, there were a couple of very fragile little connections that went from one to the other. But it, it did show on a small scale, even in really challenging conditions, what it was possible to do. And I think that was a, a valuable experience, a learning experience for people concerned. It made a tangible impact on the course of the strike. And certainly, you know, people were very effective at challenging the university's spin 
on the strike, both as it was directed to students, but as it was also just directed to people more broadly in the city. So that's something which shouldn't be forgotten. These things can so easily be forgotten because if the group doesn't maintain itself, an experience can easily be, be lost, but it, it also just draws our attention to the problem of the lack of continuity in student organizing. And I guess it's just worth mentioning really briefly that one institution that used to, to some extent help in a limited way with some of this was the Canadian Federation of Students, which still exists, although it's really been now in Manitoba reduced to a, to a University of Winnipeg thing. It's weaker than it, it used to be. So CFS did play some supporting role for students supporting UMFA, but more broadly, CFS on other campuses in other parts of the country, when there has been more left politics of some kind or another influencing the official structures of CFS, has helped a little bit in terms of legitimating and putting out some basic kind of anti-oppression or anti-neoliberal kinds of ideas onto campuses. U of W's had a, you know, its student union has a long history of affiliation to the CFS, whereas U of M has a long history of not being affiliated or of being as they are, you know, nominally affiliated, but the student unions run by people who are, are hostile to CFS and doing their best to, to defederate. But that's just worth mentioning because it's a relevant organization that its absence doesn't help. The political climate on the campus, even if its presence no longer necessarily really does very much for the left, given the way that CFS has kind of uh, drifted, I think. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I didn't have a lot of you know contact with CFS Um while I was at U of W, I knew someone who wasn't previously involved with it and had, I think, was kind of quite critical of some of the the limitations of it, um, which I, I, I'm sure there are many, but huge, huge limitations. <laughs> yeah. The politics of lobbying, which really dominate in, in CFS, you know, that's really very limited. There are lots of problems, but because the organization is committed to a broad range of social democratic policy positions and has taken positions on international questions. So there's a broader understanding of what a student issue is, that that has a positive dynamic to it. And, and there are other you know, campuses in other parts of the country where affiliation to CFS may be more meaningful, but CFS is so weak in Manitoba now that it's, um, it's not much of a factor. Whereas, and this goes back to what we were saying before about how things have, have changed. You know, CFS at other points has played a role in trying to organize even pan-Canadian student mobilizations, which were you know, those kinds of initiatives were things that social students and others could could work with, even if they had an understanding of the limits of, of CFS. Do you want to say something about yeah. the recent controversy at U of W? Yeah, I can speak on that. So at U of W, I think about a month ago now, there was a speaker through the political science department speaker series. Um, one of the faculty there announced that she was going to do a talk that the announcement for it, the title of the talk and its description all quite clearly were heavily coded transphobic language um, using uh, a kind of a framing that was, was very clear that this was going to align with other right-wing or strangely actually kind of nominally anti-capitalist transphobia, though kind of with no really grounding in, uh, in fact, uh, you know, as I later went to the talk and uh, did some digging into the sources, which were all, uh, you know, the, the most reputable one was the New York Times, the rest of them were mostly made up. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a disaster. There was, of course, outrage at the fact that this talk was even happening and was scheduled in the first place. And uh, while it seems like the university itself tried to kind of not publicize the talk, at least, it was very kind of difficult to find initially. It was very quickly discovered and widely circulated by activists who were very rightly upset about this, drawing attention to, you know, why is this happening in a time when there's kind of such brutal attacks on trans people in, uh, you know, all over the world, and especially kind of in the US and the UK right now, and increasingly in Canada. So the community response, the, the response kind of was uh, a combination of students and faculty at the University of Winnipeg, as well as broader activists within like the queer and trans community in Winnipeg, who really kind of rallied around opposing this. There was a number of different forms that this activism took. There was a petition that was made to the university administration to have the talk canceled. You know, initially, there was talk about possibly protesting the actual 
event as it happened. The event ended up being moved to being on Zoom instead. So that was no longer possible. Instead, there's like a community like cupcake and trans positive sort of celebratory event that kind of took place uh, at the same time as the talk, which was, you know, attended by something like 200 people. So a, a way for kind of people to vent their frustration and kind of have some kind of community building, which I think is quite broadly positive. Where I do have some kind of critique of the uh, the way activism was carried out is that, again, it did kind of fall on this petitioning and administration to um, intervene in this way. And the university did put out a response in the end that was very kind of trying to take a, a strange sort of middle road on the issue, um, saying that they, you know, kind of affirming their you know, commitment to the LGBTQ community, while at the same time saying that they were not going to do anything about the, the event, which was really no surprise. It would have been more of a scandal for them to have kind of taken aside in this kind of way. But one of the issues with the sort of strategy and approaching the event by trying to cancel it is it was immediately clear to say quite a lot of people who have seen this sort of dynamic happen on campuses before that this speaker was sort of trying to be provocative, was trying to get her event uh, canceled so that she could label herself as a free speech martyr and seem to have, uh, at, at least the speculation was that there's some sort of aspiration to be like the next Jordan Peterson or to be a a person who could kind of be championed by all the different publications and other people out there right now who are very much uh, part of this anti-trans circuit. So there's a, the issue where this in some ways plays into, well, it, it does play directly into what the speaker was possibly hoping for. There's also an issue, again, of giving away our, our power in a way by asking an administration to do something about this, to ask an authority or petition an authority to act instead of thinking about ways that community mobilization could happen in in various ways. Ideally, the like protesting of the talk itself, a number of people did end up coming to the talk and posing really challenging questions to the speaker that tried to undo her points. This because it was over Zoom, um, it, she had full access to vetting any questions beforehand. So this was not allowing for any sort of open forum or actual freedom of speech, which is, you know, of course, the irony of this whole whole debate. And yeah, there is a, I think, sometimes a response with the rise of anti-trans stuff that is happening out there where the people who are trying to fight against it, are, our response sometimes is very much trying to like show up and stop something from happening rather than taking a bit more of a broader perspective on like how can we actually mobilize that is in a way that isn't just responsive to individual events, individual speakers or actions, but something that is actually going to be movement building in some capacity or has the possibility to do so at least. Right now in Canada, we are in an interesting position with the whole anti-trans movement where the current liberal government has positioned itself in the past um, as being uniquely friendly towards queer communities. There's the whole meme of Trudeau being a feminist and this kind of thing. And this has been very part of the sort of political clout that the liberals are trying to develop. At the same time, the reality for most trans people in this country is, is really quite difficult. I mean, if you just look at statistics around suicide and statistics around employment, access to employment, you know, never mind, listen to people's actual experiences of what they've gone through. It is it is really challenging. And that is not really being addressed by the government passing a bill, finding new ways to prosecute people for hate crimes or for adding gender to the list of things one can prosecute in the criminal hate crime bill, nor does that get helped by canceling a individual speaker. There needs to be a kind of broader, a broader movement. And while opposing individual speakers can very much be a part of that movement, I don't think it is the end point of it. And I think this is a perspective that is sadly too often lacking. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. It was great to see that people did actually, you know, move to to act at U of W against this talk. But the um the logic of petitioning the administration to act in the way that they did. And of course, this was the administration that banned Israeli apartheid week. 
on campus, right? Um, trying to get the administration to, uh, to, you know, decide who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak on campus. Uh, that's a very slippery slope. You know, there was a real problem you've identified. And just connecting back to what we were talking about before in terms of the way people learn to think politically, that the logic of that, right? If you, you see a problem and you ask the administration to come and solve it for you, you know, that's very similar to asking the state to come and solve a problem for you in some other setting, right? And it's not that we shouldn't be putting demands on the administration or putting demands on the state, but thinking about how we do that and which demands we place and how that works to try to actually build collective power. That's a different way of, of thinking about it. So I think we can, yeah, we can certainly learn a lot from the response that uh, has happened recently and hopefully some of the politicization that's happening can, can go on in a, a different direction that's flowing more in the, the direction that you're pointing to. I mean, this does bring up the question, radical students who are listening to this or people who are radicals working at a university in Manitoba and what they can do to try to actually uh, be effective and, and put people's politics into practice. Sure. I mean, this is a tough question because I certainly don't have answers for people, but I, I do maybe have some thoughts having you know, been a, a somewhat recent graduate of the U of W who was politicized during my time there and very much had a difficult time finding ways to express that. I think if I was going to kind of give myself lessons for having been a, a recent student, um, it, part of it would just really be to find other people who are having these discussions, who are interested in these ideas and talking with them about, about it. And that can happen both on campus, but also if the organizations that are on campus are not there or are lackluster to say the least, looking beyond them to find context that you can connect with. And you might be able to like talk through some of the issues happening on campus with people who have some of this, you know, this history or broader perspective that they might be able to help you work through. I would say that is pretty important. Finding ways to read about radical politics that aren't just in a classroom and that are with other people who are interested in them for the purpose of figuring out what to do about them, whether that's just a few people in a reading group on that meets somewhere on campus every week, that kind of small beginning is probably going to be really beneficial once you kind of get it going and look back on it. And I don't mean to just kind of point to these kind of small things one can do, but I also think even if there is something that is perhaps not kind of politically perfect or clearly lacking in a number of ways, not being afraid to involve yourself with it and see where you can intervene and push it further because the left is so weak and campuses have such a kind of dearth of politics happening on them. There probably will not be organizations that will meet all of the all of your real needs there, but you might still be able to learn from your experience working with them a little bit. Even if it ends up being stuff you wish was different, it might still be valuable to be to have been a part of for that reason and might connect you with things that are more interesting further on. So those are some of the thoughts I would have. And I would just add that, of course, Solidarity Winnipeg, although we're a very modest initiative, we, we do try to do some of these things in terms of reading groups and discussions and so on. So um, feel free to reach out um, and we're happy to try to share lessons of experience that we might have, or if you're interested in being part of some of the discussions that we're having, you're welcome to be part of that too. And then the other, there's another question, which is uh, radicals who are working on, on university campuses, many of them, perhaps most of them would be members of, of unions. And so there's definitely ways to get involved in your union. It depends on which union we're talking about. Some have more space than, than others. Um, for uh, for this at the moment, or, or has, there's more going on in terms of activity in, in some of the unions on Manitoba campuses at the moment than, than others. But it, it is important, given the fact that the ongoing neoliberal restructuring of universities is going to throw up new challenges and attacks on workers and on the services that people deliver, quality of education and so on. So we do need stronger, which means more democratic, more participatory, more active, more solidaristic, more militant unions on our campuses. And so trying to get involved often means trying to work to change the union. And that can be difficult. It's not something you're going to do by yourself, but trying to find like-minded people who you can work with to try to make the union stronger. That's an, a really important, I would say, priority task for radicals. And there's also things that can be done sometimes to work with and support student initiatives, depending on what those might be. But that's um, 
that's important to break down some of those barriers between between students and, and workers on campuses. Not easy to do at the moment, given the state of things on the campuses. But I think those of us who work on the campus have a responsibility to try to do that, to assist students and look for opportunities in whatever small way we can. And then, of course, people should try to do what they can to strengthen the radical left more, more broadly off campus as well. The stronger the radical left is off campus, often the better it's going to be for people on campus, both students and, and workers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidarity Winnipeg. See you.